Welcome to the Most Interesting People in Higher Education. I'm Lee Bradshaw, and this is a Noodle Production. I've spent my entire career collaborating with some of the most influential campus leaders. Together, we've transformed higher ed. In this series, I'll take you on never-heard-before journeys from the narrative arcs of the people evolving some of the most respected institutions in the world. You'll get an insider perspective from the mission-driven administrators, influential professors, devoted researchers, and others that are part of the highly interesting cadre of people transforming higher ed. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the most interesting people in higher education. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ann Kurth, who some of you might know is the uh, the dean of the Yale School of Nursing, not too from not too far from me over in New Haven, Connecticut. And welcome to the show. I'm really happy to have you here. Thanks so much, Lee. I really enjoy that you're doing this and uh, for the opportunity. Great, great, and I'm happy to have you here. We were going to record in person. It was going to be my first in-person recording, and then uh, logistics and and life happened, and so we're we're not too far away, but uh, we are doing it remotely. So, um, you know, tell us all about you. How did how did you um how did you get involved in this you know this whole thing about being a dean of nursing at one of the top institutions in the country? It's kind of a big deal. Well, you know, it's a circuitous path, um, but there's there's really a thread that pulls through, and it's uh, my passion for improving the health of people. Um, particularly when there are crises and uh, structurally marginalized populations, which we continue to have in the United States. Mm. So, you know, I've worked in a lot of sectors. I've worked in nonprofit. I've worked in hospitals. I've worked in health departments. Um, I've worked in, in, in nonprofits. But then I came into higher ed, and that's really been about half of my career. So the journey in higher ed has always been very stimulating. I love the universities. They are this incredible human endeavor. Right. Uh, you know, you think about not just the University of Bologna, but I remember being in Vietnam at a monastery and it was essentially a university, mm. right? A thousand years ago. So this is this higher education as, a, as an idea and a, and a human, uh, a profound human collaboration has been around for a long time, longer than corporations, right? Corporations, what are they? East India was what, 300 years ago, right? Yes. Some, of the, some of the big corporations don't last a century. So here I am at Yale now, uh, that's you know over 300 years um, and, and counting. So I, I count myself very lucky to, that, uh, to be able to do that. First of all, because frankly, I'm female. So, you know, my grandmothers could not get an education, only the boys could. My mothers were told there were three professions. You could be a secretary, you could be a nurse, you could be a teacher, right? And here I am, I got to go to uh, Mm. multiple, multiple universities, including uh, Ivy Leagues, and it's changed the trajectory of my life. And I want that for other people. So um, as I say, half my work life has been out in the real world. Half my work life has been in academia. Uh, I've been at um, University of Washington, where I got my PhD in epidemiology. I trained as a certified nurse midwife at Yale. So this was a coming home to become dean of the School of Nursing. I, I also did. That. Yeah, yeah. I, did, I, I did public health at Columbia University in the middle of the, the really the HIV outbreak um, back in the day. So all of those factors kind of um, have woven together and put me on this journey to coming back to my alma mater. And I'm um, having the privilege of, of becoming dean for the last seven years. And um, it's been a great journey. So that's, um, that's quite a storied background. So I didn't, I mean, it's, it's also worldly. And the fact that you threw in the East India Trading Company in there from the 1600s, um, you know, to boot shows, shows a little bit about how you think. So how much of that was intentional? Like, were you, were you out looking to build up 
a background that interesting to use the word like was that a was that a, a conscious thought that you needed that much worldly experience that much um uh, higher ed and like elite higher ed experience to become a a certain kind of person uh that you wanted to be or did it just happen like how did mm. how does that come to be well, I think there's some family influence. So in my upbringing, my father's a physician, my mother, um, who just passed recently, was a nurse. And it was really kind of the classic back in the day, he was a GP before he specialized. And literally, my mom was the office nurse in our house in a little town in, in New Hampshire. So we literally would have, you know, patients sitting in the front yeah. hall, hallway, yeah. you know, and I and I would get to count the pills into the pill bottles. And, you know, so it was a real introduction to primary care in, in That's the, the real in, deal. Oh, in the old style, you know, um, and it was, uh, that was really wonderful. And also my parents would volunteer time in the summers. They, he was affiliated eventually with the Seventh-day Adventist hospital system. And so um, mm. we would kind of go on medical missions, which, you know, is a little bit ethically fraught if you think about it in some regards. It's got to be very bilateral and mutually sure. supportive and all that. But back in the day, um, and so that exposed me early on to a recognition of how widely variable people's life experiences were. It may sound so obvious, but unless you see it and experience it, right? Um, in your, in your, you have one way of living, and then you you get to see uh, multiple ways of living and multiple contexts in which people have health or don't, um, and that's always very enlightening. And so we 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 went to the Navajo reservation, and that was a, an incredible experience. And as we know, the Indian Health Service still um, does not get as, as much right. um, you know support as it should. It does not have as as many practitioners and, and resources as it should. However, and here's a good moment, one of our first doctor of nursing practice, which of course in nursing is the practice doctorate, one of our first BNP graduates from the Yale School of Nursing, Lynn Malerba, Chief Lynn Malerba, is now the U.S. Treasurer. So there's oh, an example of nursing leadership. She, her name is going to be, you look for it, it's going to be on the currency, her signature, the first Indigenous woman, Native American woman, to be the U.S. Treasurer. So it's an example of how nursing can take you in so many directions, but all of it focused on um, trying to improve healthcare for people, and that that has been the thread. I'll admit I did just start googling um, about Lynn, and I'm going to stop because I, I just started reading as you were saying. I was like, no, this is too interesting. Uh, I'll <laughs> I'll save this till after. So congrats to Lynn Malerba. That's that's incredible. So. I mean, you're you're clearly passionate about this, right? And I, I think that's one of the trends we keep finding when we when we and the whole point of this show was like how many interesting people are there out there that are trying to improve higher ed or keep it together or like all sorts of different roles. There was an interesting story as we were preparing for this. Uh, you said something about I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but it was it was Tanzania, um, and mm. I, I'm not so I'm not going to go down the whole story. But you mentioned something around um, I think the president of Tanzania that that might be. A little interesting to our to our listeners who are uh, who are fans of higher ed and a little more global thinkers and a little more forward thinkers. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that story. So I, I think the advantage of higher ed, and it is still a strength and an advantage, is we do take the long view, right? I mm. mean, again, centuries. Yes, there are waves of students who come in and out, but there's this kind of cyclical, ongoing nature to all of it. And that, in a way, it sets us outside of time, and it gives us that contemplative ability. 
Um, I'm going to come back to this though, because I think it's also a hindrance to us okay. and the way we need okay. to be forward thinking. But um, the point being that we, we get this opportunity to really think broadly um, in higher ed. And so for me, um, there, there's a purpose-driven approach to, to my own life and the way I want to spend my time that I find fits really well with higher ed. You know, we're, we're, we're coming together, we're collaborating across. What an incredible resource, people's minds, trying to address the problems of the day. Um, I'm also very pragmatic in that sense and nurses tend to be. And, and it's also a rem- I think it's important to recall the advantages we have in the United States, even though there's a wide variety, obviously, of resources and public, private, community colleges, you know, um, I'm sitting at a very, very privileged place right now, of course, at Yale, because it was started so early and has had access to so many incredible alumni and donors over time, and not every higher ed institution in the United States has, obviously, but, you know, that there is this ability to think widely and to realize that some of us are not very far removed from where a lot of other people are. And this is the way I think of global health. Hmm. So my own, my own That's story. That's an interesting perspective. Okay. Yeah. My own, my own story is that my great grandmother died postpartum in Slovakia because she didn't have a health provider. And that spurred my heartbroken great you know, grandfather to pick up his little children and come on the steamer to in New York Harbor and see the Statue of Liberty and start a life in America. And that's why I got to go to universities and have, a, have this incredible life, just one or two, two generations removed. So I do work in global health. It's, 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 it's um, you know, global health is just about addressing health inequities wherever they happen. And it might be in your own backyard in the United States, or it might be uh, with colleagues around the world. And so uh, Tanzania is a place that has a very high maternal mortality rate. I was chatting about that with the president of Tanzania at a dinner party that a colleague had put together. Um, and I mentioned my own story of my, you know, my great grandmother dying. And he was immediately so, he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I mean, he, his people, uh, uh, this was President Kiketwe at the time, you know, his own um, citizens are dying at uh, unacceptably high rates, and yet he was empathetic. Mm. So just to say, we're not that far removed from infectious disease, right? Infectious diseases are still with us, um, but, you know, the high rates of maternal mortality and child mortality that we used to have in the United States. And of course, we do still have maternal mortality, and there is a differential by race, black versus white. Those are all things we still have to work on, but there is at least this resource base and the possibility of better health care um, that is really strained and stretched in places and countries like Tanzania that are lower income. And that's been especially accelerated during COVID, I'm sorry to say. It's always fascinating when you're at a dinner conversation and it's either one degree of separation away from a person or a topic. And the next thing you know, it's like you've known each other forever. Um, mm-hmm. If it's a life experience like that. I mean, those are, I'm sorry that the uh, the, the context of, of the, the example or, or, you know, is, is unfortunate with your with your family and what's going on there but uh, it's always like that moment over you know dinner and drinks where you're like oh we are we're all one people uh and then you can kind of get in it's like that's such a great moment exactly and 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 there is power to higher education it's it's not just theoretical right i mean yes right now i think the american public is 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 questioning um and, and as you know those public surveys sure. really flip sure. you know it used to be a pretty well accepted truth that that you know higher education is, is a benefit in the United States and that has been shifted and become more partisan and so forth. But nonetheless, higher education may I believe firmly does make a difference. I mean I'm technically first gen in that sense of neither of my yeah. parents actually has a college degree, if that's the definition. Right. Again, I have all these advantages and it's made a difference and, and it makes a difference for so many. And just coming back to the maternal mortality um, example. So we know from articles that were put together in The Lancet, including by some of our wonderful faculty here at the Yale School of Nursing, Holly Kennedy and others, um, that when you educate a midwife, 
you have the same return on investment as childhood vaccination. So there's an actual concrete measure of the impact of higher education. When you educate people, you can change lives, you can change economies, um, and you can change the trajectory of the world. So let me make sure I understand that. There is a causational relationship between midwifery education and lowering mortality rates amongst infants. Yes, that's the same as vaccinations. Uh, um, yeah, among, so, so when you, in other words, midwives, and in many countries, nurses are co-trained to be midwives and nurses. In, in other countries, yep. midwifery is a separate profession, and we've got both of them here um, in the U.S. But, but in other words, uh, when there are more midwives um, educated and out there in, uh, in, in their communities, you can dramatically reduce maternal mortality as well as, as um, um, infant and, and early childhood mortality. Mm. And it's the same kind of impact of these wonderful technologies that we have around childhood vaccination, you know, which have been very powerful. So it's a good reminder that there is a, a very concrete as well as an ethereal impact of, of health, higher education, particularly in the health professions, I, I, I would argue, obviously. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's fascinating. Like the more I the more people I talk to in my life, and I, I come from a, a family um, with a lot of nursing background. Um, so a shout out to Elizabeth Bradshaw, but Elizabeth Makula um, is her is her is her name since marriage a decade ago. But um, who's the, who's over at HCA and like you know Alice Bradshaw, my cousin who was at UVA. But like so like we're we're that family. But anyway, point being, not not only do I have great cousins, but like my my dad was just in Montana and had a had a spill on his bike, and mm. like. Now that he's back home, um, like all he can talk about is how much care he received from the nurse, right? It's like mm-hmm. changed his life. Not only did he feel better physically, but his mental health was was improved because the way mm-hmm. like her bedside manner. Whereas, not not his words, but like the juxtaposition I, I could sense of the doctor's experience with him was very different. Mm-hmm. Like, that was just a place of information for him, but like the, the nurse made everything better. And like I just mm-hmm. I don't know. Like the the more people I talk to, the more I'm incredibly impressed by everybody in nursing. Anyway, so a bit of a tangent, sorry. So I, you've been a part of a bunch of things as well. When I was doing my, my research, I noticed that you were part of like the, the preventative task force. Um, if you can share mm-hmm. a little bit more about that and who was on the preventative task force, like what, did it, what were you mm-hmm. trying to accomplish? You know, what did you accomplish and all of that? I think that's kind of interesting stuff too. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So you, you're probably aware, uh, you know, um, in the United States, and it's true in other countries as well, we spend a tiny fraction of our health budget on prevention. And, you know, it's far and away uh, a really effective way to spend money. And yet we put uh, 97% of our expenditure on, you know, really care delivery way down the, the chain of, of impact instead of in prevention. Uh, and, and that percentage has declined. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you, you know, so, so prevention is really crucial. And, and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, it's a nonpartisan, non-governmental entity made up of clinicians staffed by the AHRQ. Um, is the is the organization that helps helps just run the the, the task force, but it, it basically it, its purview, its congressionally determined purview, is to set um, screening and prevention guidelines for the United States. So it was just a marvelous experience. Um, there, you know, there's uh, usually about about 18 members, mostly physicians, uh, often then a nurse and maybe a psychologist, uh, and and just the ability to uh, rank uh, important health uh, conditions and problems, and then uh, really assess the evidence base. So this is just fantastic. 
fantastic. We had colleagues at evidence review centers who would then do the, you know, the systematic reviews and meta-analyses and sometimes modeling as needed. But man, it was just a great way to, to just summarize sometimes those thousands of, of articles in the, in the clinical literature and come up with what should be the guidance um, for your, your practicing primary care provider to ensure that we do a better job with primary care um, and prevention. And so that was, that was a very interesting experience. So you're, I mean, it's a trend I'm, I keep picking up on, like you're, you're, you always have a seat at the table. You're, you're in a lot of interesting places. Um, and I, I think that usually people get invited into those situations, not the other way around, especially when they're important situations. And I'm curious, uh, how did you, how do you get involved in all this, right? You're at incredible dinner parties, having incredible conversations. Mm-hmm. You're the, I think the one nurse on that preventative task force with a bunch of MDs, uh, how does it find you if you can, if you can back solve that? Mm. Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I honestly believe healthcare is definitely a team sport, right? And so I, I think there's a growing appreciation that obviously you have got to have all the players um, engaged. And your father's experience is one example of that. You know, every discipline is brought up on its first principles and, and brings certain unique advantages. And I would say for, for nursing, it's that we do have this rather holistic uh, sort of framework. And in fact, the very definition of nursing that was developed by one of our deans, early deans at Yale School of Nursing, Virginia Henderson, it was used by the World Health Organization for many years. It, in, in essence, says basically, you know, as nurses, we're there to help the person if they can't help themselves, but really we're trying to maximize people's ability to, um, to be healthy themselves. And that's a slightly different model than a curative model of I'm gonna diagnose and then I'm gonna prescribe or I'm gonna cut. And that's what I can contribute to you, you know? But all of that is needed, right? You need all of those pieces and you need the hospital administrators, God bless you. You need the pharmacists, you need social work and you need, you need patients themselves to be at the center of, of, um, of their care. And that's a growing trend. Um, and I think again, you know, higher ed as we think about how do we educate both sort of professionals, but also think about, you know, informed citizens, there's a role to play in, in helping people to be informed in assessing science, knowing how to utilize experts um, effectively. And I think we have some challenges around that still in the United States at this moment in time. And I, I hope higher ed can step forward with that a little bit so that we can be more science-based, mm. but also human-centered on people's needs. So is that that was a really, a really that was a really modest answer. <laughs> I, I like the instead of instead of how you answered why, uh, because it's well, your vast knowledge and expertise. But I might I might ask it again and see if we how did you. Well, yeah, so I I will say again, coming back to there are advantages, right, to um, to being of a certain uh, lineage, right? So, oh, you went to an Ivy school, therefore, Mm. I have some assumptions about you, right? And, and, oh, and frankly, you get to meet people in different networks that may have different avenues of power and influence. And so the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, actually, as I recall, um, I was nominated, um, and then NYU, our faculty at the time, um, you know, got got a congressman to write a letter, and so endorsing me to be a, a representative. So, wow. you know, those those are things universities can do as well, right? Those connections with government, with the other sectors, and um, so that, that, in that example, uh, it was it was that, as well as my training as an epidemiologist, which is helpful for evaluating right. clinical right. clinical evidence. Yeah, it's like I mean, to the to the point around that you made around universities and higher ed being everywhere. It's it. I think you're right. People are looking at the cost of it right now. And there's, there's a critical moment around the, the, the transaction, if you will, of mm-hmm. higher ed and how it's paid for and all that. But the more you dig in, the more you realize it's everywhere. It's part of the fabric of the founding of our nation. It's part of like how we all created our networks. It is, is it perfect? No, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it's literally woven through everything we've ever done. 
so yeah i i'm with you i, I think it uh it is the platform it's uh it's more powerful than i think a lot of people really are aware of and i don't mean power from the on the individual side i mean as a as a momentum to improve the world yeah no i i do and you know i mean i, I obviously we're we, we believe that we're fans we're obviously we're fans be, yeah we're gonna be <laughs> in this space. sit around and you agree know. with each other here for 30 minutes but, but you know but i mean we, i think we do have to figure out the the cost and the value piece i love i love those um institutions that are you know really focusing on the social mobility index i think that's very important i think in the united states and as in other places when you've got that uh, widening economic divide and that is you know the problem the increasing gini index and you've got uh, rich and poor, and we don't have the middle class supported, that undermines democracy. I think we've seen that historically, and we've seen it around the world. Higher mm. education has a role to play in helping um, all of us, you know, be able to um, reach our maximum potential, but we do have to address the, the cost issue and and um, and the value. So. That's right. So tell me, speaking of, of the globe and health, you, you, you co-founded the Global Health Institute. So can you share a little bit about what that is, um, what its charter is, and what what you're up to there? Yeah, so uh, so at Yale we we uh, we have incredible faculty and and students and staff, you know, but doing a lot of work with a lot of colleagues around the world for many many decades. Not always a centralizing organizing principle. So um, some some years back, myself and the dean of the public health school and and the med school at the mm. time, um, we kind of bootstrapped it and said let's let's put together an institute across our three clinical schools as a starting point. But of course, okay. it has to involve all all of the university, you want to leverage all of it, right? Law and business, and it, it all comes into play if you're going to be effective at addressing important global problems. And so we did, we were able to create sort of an, an institute uh, mechanism. Uh, I was also chair of, the, of, the, of a nonprofit called the Consortium of Universities for Global Health, which was uh, at the time 185 university member organization, members around the world, focused on leveraging academia for global health. And, right. and so that, that was also a great um, group to work with because again, you know, universities can have that long-term perspective. They often have students, you know, who can be involved in research projects. It's a little bit different than, uh, you know, uh, perhaps a nonprofit or even a for-profit that goes in and tries to get the consulting, you know, project. There can be kind of a continuity of the lessons learned when you have academia involved in ideally in some of these um, problem-solving um, cases. And you, you were doing all of that before it was cool. Before the pandemic hit, right? There were a lot of there were a lot of people who jumped onto that later and said, "Oh, this is this is where it's all heading. We need to be better at global health and epidemiology." And mm -hmm. uh, we saw a surge in epi MPHs and a surge of you know yeah. armchair yeah. experts probably too. But I'm curious what it was like um, mm. being being the hipster of global global health. Like you were, <laughs> you were thinking about it for a long time and like really uh, meant it. And then now everybody's mm -hmm. talking about it. What, what's what was that like? Well, you know, I mean, these things come in waves because, you know, pandemics come in waves also. Um, and so, you know, actually, um, actually, when I was an undergraduate many years ago, I, uh, I got a I got a scholarship to be able to go to East Africa. Um, and that was back in the day when there was not as much, you know, sort of cross national, um, you know, student exchanges and so forth. Um, I actually got, it was a scholarship from uh, Marie Curie's daughter, uh, the journalist, Eve, Eve Curie established this um, this fund for her husband who did the Marshall Plan. Um, actually, he was in charge of the Marshall Plan uh, after World War II. So I got to go to Malawi and and again, kind of early days of looking at global health work and, and it was early days of HIV, although we didn't know it, it was not invisible then. So, you know, global health has had this evolution often been focused on, you know, people from high income places going to low income places. And that right. model, let me tell you, that's getting, right. we, we call that, you know, decolonizing global health now. But this idea 
that universities around the world, we're all part of the same tribe actually, right? And you can, you can visit someone, a faculty member anywhere in the world and as a faculty member, and, and there is an affinity there. That's a powerful thing to try to leverage mm. towards for longstanding and, and not, not tea with a K uh, problem. So when you, when you hear about things, I mean, this is a topical thing like monkeypox, and, and now it's like they're trying to understand where it is and why it's there and all this. Do you, do you just want to mobilize? Like you just like immediately like I I want to work on this I I want to figure this out like what is that am I overplaying yeah. it or is that is that what it's oh, like no, no no it's you know especially those of us who came came through the HIV day, right. early days right you know, you know HIV activists changed the way we think about healthcare and how we deliver research and how we engage with communities when these novel pathogens or reemerging pathogens happen and they will. It will continue to happen. There's 350 disease causing new or, or re-emerging old pathogens. So you can never stop. Wait, say, say that again. So help me understand. There's, there's at least 350 pathogens that we should be worried about at any, any moment in time that could become outbreaks, right? I mean, and so being able to map and track the potential hotspots, the potential new pathogens, and and invest in the public health and healthcare delivery infrastructure so that you can anticipate problems, prevent them ideally, react quickly and effectively when they do happen and bounce back after the tragedies or after the shock to the system. That's what we should ideally be doing, but you know, it is sort of human nature to sort of address a problem only when it's right in your face, and especially if it's about you know people who are, we don't seem to care about as much as societies, and that's always a problem because every health condition eventually affects all of us. Uh, so, so you know, th there is this cyclical nature of investment in public health and 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 even in in, in you know lower income countries and healthcare infrastructure that uh, is is really can be tragic because it doesn't give us a way to get ahead of some of these problems, which will continue mm. and and they're going to accelerate in the era of climate change. So coming coming to that topic because it is very much a passion of mine and it's in front of all of us. And all of the surveys, including surveys of U.S. citizens, have shown that people increasingly do understand. Yes. Climate yeah. change is real. Global warming, yeah. the global crisis, it, it's real. It's happening. It's affecting me and my neighbors. It's affecting people I care about. We need to do something about it. I will say that has that has changed and that has that awareness has grown in the last few years. And so that gives me a sense of hope. But yes, yeah, certainly as the as the globe heats and as it's not just the global heating, it's you know, desertification and, you know, air, arable land is a problem. And, um, you know, uh, there's a range of issues that, that are all at play now because of the way we've structured our industrial society, which has brought great benefits, but also has damaged the planet and, and the ecosystems right. on which we all you know, you know, need to survive. So in that context, we will see more pathogens, right? Where humans are pushing themselves into other animals' um, environments. So we're gonna be exposed where we wouldn't have been before. Um, we're, we're doing markets and we have air travel. And so any, any outbreak that happens has the potential to be spread very quickly, whether that's monkeypox, you know, which is endemic in Africa, but now it has an outbreak. And so we, I hope that we also, you know, take our lessons learned. And so I, I'm actually um, very lucky to be a chair, co-chair now of the board on global health, which is at the National Academy of Medicine. National Academy of, of Medicine. Of course you are. Of course you are. Yeah. Well, it's it, it's super great because we have these this National Academy of Medicine and and they're in every other country. So there's a there's a there's an international community of National Academies of Medicine and Science and Engineering and and we're leveraging those to work on climate change. Um, uh, for our National Academy of Medicine, climate change is now one of the top priorities to work on, and our Board of Global Health, of course, has been. Um, tracking and engaged in that as well. But again, it's sort of the idea of leveraging uh, both governments but also academia um, uh, right. to address. And these I, I had a feeling. Yep. So. 
I mean, here's a, an easy question. Is Bill Gates right? Is is the mosquito the the most dangerous animal in the world or should we focus yeah. elsewhere? Oh, uh, well, I mean, I, I think you can argue that Homo sapiens probably has been. <laughs> Ooh, that's a hot take. That's I interesting. Mean, yeah, I, I, mean, I like the way you turn that around. What a beautiful species, but, you know, boy, we have, I mean, again, we are living through, you know, a, yeah. species, a species crash um, that has been, you know, and we are directly responsible for it. So we, we often think, of, of course, of ourselves as humans, but, but um, you know, this is a devastating era of, of other species, um, obviously, going extinct. extinct. So, mm-hmm. so look, you know, it, there, there's been progress, and, and yet, uh, and we have some tools um, that, that we, we have to utilize and we can utilize. And so that's why I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really pleased when I see organizations like Yale has done um, make some commitments to becoming carbon-free, not just net carbon-free right. with offsets, but truly carbon-free in terms of production of greenhouse gas emissions. And we have committed to that here. And we have a blueprint for how to get there. We're going to use geothermal and we've, we're paying a tax on ourselves for future generations to under, underwrite some of our efforts. So we actually have a very concrete plan which I would say not everybody who's making some carbon-free goals has done yet, but it's important to do and um, universities should be doing it. So the, I mean, so you, what you're talking about is carbon neutral Yale, right? The initiative, I think that you're, you're a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When you say tax, do you mean like you're trying to create an incentive to, re- to remove something or do you mean the, the tax is there to then tr- transfer funds from one place to another? Like how did uh, yeah. how does that work? How does it work at a at a fundamental level for you all? So 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 how do you pay for that? When you have to change the way you do something, and we all resist it, right? You have to change right. the way you do something. Who's going to pay for it? You know, what do I what do I give up? Um, but but sometimes you ha- we have to change the way we are mm-hmm. are um, making an environmental impact in the world. Some technologies and approaches we have now, some we have to develop. Um, but all of it means we're going to have to change some of the way we do things, whether it's setting our thermostat lower or, you know, um, uh, carpooling or taking public transit and we're getting an EV vehicle. You know, th- there are changes that, that we all have to make. And so Yale was actually the first university to do a carbon um, tax where we actually looked at our energy input uh, and out- output, I mean, in, in each of our buildings. And um, mm. if we were within, within a range. We were okay. And it did seem, there was an article in science um, uh, about it. It, it did, did seem to have an impact on behavior. So so there are some economic arguments. We have Bill Lord Health here, the Nobel Prize winner. So, you know, economic right. incentives actually are some behavioral levers, no question. Um, so that was one approach that we took as a university. But the other approach really that President Salovey um, of, of Yale announced last year was this idea that we will, as a university, not be emitting carbon in 2050. So how are we going to do that? We have to look at all the different scopes of where emissions come from and how are we going to ratchet that down? How are we going to make some changes? Um, and in that sense, we as administrators had to say, well, we have to help pay for some of these efforts. It's not going to be free. And do we, do we agree to pay that now versus future generations having to live with it? And we, you know, it was a small detail and part of the budget of being able to carry out of this blueprint, but it was part of our, our blueprint. And that was, are you, are you, does that mean you all are part of the the UN's drive for carbon free by 2050? Like, is it tied to that, or is that independent yeah, target? There are kind of a number of, of of initiatives and coalitions, and 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 those are those are good to see. But this is sort of you know pretty much Specific. focused on just yeah, just ensuring that Yale, yeah. which had kind of been an early leader, and we we, we maybe you know lost a little ground there. We we want to get back 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 out there and and um, ensure that we were committing. And to committing to working with our our, our community in New Haven because we're a coastal city, so we're at risk of flooding and all the rest of it. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, I always my opinion on 
levies and taxes changed over time, right? Like early on, I uh, leaving every politics, everything out of it. Just I always thought of like taxes, what my parents paid um, and complain about. And then it was like, no, taxes, what I pay and what I complain about. And now it's like, oh, tax is actually a way to change behavior. Uh, and mm-hmm. get people to stop smoking in New York or like all sorts of things where you see like if done uh, intentionally and, uh, and and measured, you can really see change. And so that was, was interesting to just hear you bring it up as like as part mm-hmm. of the whole plan. It's like, no, we're just going to tax ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think I think mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. As we're as we're coming on time here, um, I wanted to hit on a couple of things. I know that I'm sorry to hear you're leaving, but I know a lot of people are excited to hear you're coming to uh, the New York Academy of Medicine and you'll be starting there. Uh, I not too long from now yeah yeah okay thank you yeah and you'll be the the president of the new york academy of medicine is that right yes that's right so it's a 175 year old organization focused on public health and 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 medicine and its ability to to, again impact and improve health in the city of new york and and um also as a role model elsewhere um even around the globe because it's it's uh, such a leader of, of city health. It really helped put together the first ur- urban uh, uh, city health department um, at, in New York. Did the first publication on maternal mortality, for example, did a report in the mm. 1960s on homosexuality that said, oh, you know, this is a, a disease that can be cured. The previous president just apologized for that report. So you always got to look back at history. Did we really do the right thing in terms of, of interpreting the science and, and you know, um, own, own what needs to change? But it's it's a great organization, and I I, I will be the first you know non-physician leader of the of the of the organization. So I'm looking forward to that. And I will, well, I will be working on climate change issues um, in in New York City, as you can imagine. Great. Well, I'm I'm excited to watch that roll out as a New York City citizen. You and then you I heard you mention earlier your thought you said healthcare is a team sport, um, mm-hmm. and then we, you kind of mentioned the different roles in that. But can you say more about that? Because I think as you as you move into a role where you're the president of a very uh, well-regarded and long-established uh, group, uh, organiz- uh, association, organization, that's that's a pretty interesting motto to come in with or to mm. at least say. And I, can you say more what you mean by that? I, I picked up on it and wrote it down. Like, I'd love to. Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, as we think about even the high, in, the, in the topic of higher education, right? Only men used to be able to access higher education, right? Uh, and so, you know, and opening up of the academy and of our understanding and appreciation of what delivers health and what delivers robust economies and so forth, what delivers peace and prosperity, and a recognition that, it, it, you know, it's not just one discipline or it's not just one um, group that can do that. I think that appreciation and understanding helps, helps advance all of us. Agreed. The idea of teams and the strength of a, a team rather than just one person who's getting all the mm-hmm. credit too. Like if that's just an, seems like such a backwards way of thinking. Uh, so anytime, anytime somebody mentions something about a team sport, I think it's just a better way to think about life in general too. It's mm-hmm. a lot stronger, a lot more durable, anti-fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Cool. And, and we know this even for you know, businesses and organizations, you know, when you have a right. more diverse board, that's really how I think diverse, of it. Right. It's strengthening, it's right? It's strengthening for corners. Couldn't agree more. Um, so on our way out, I'll, I'll ask the, uh, the final question, like, what are you thinking about right now? What do you want everybody to be thinking about right now? If, if, if you had your druthers, like what, what should, what should be on everybody's mind, um, according to Dr. Ankerth? Well, the, the climate crisis is a health crisis. Um, but there's, there are things we can do about it. Um, there's no reason to get overwhelmed. We really can take action. And some of those actions can be at the individual level, but really they're at, at, at broader um, structural and political levels. 
um, but we can make those changes and it will help not just our generation, but you know, future generations. And um, I think the next book I'm gonna read is long-term, the, 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 uh, what we owe the future. So long-termism, I think we need to be thinking about that. It's not just our lives and our, our immediate uh, generations, but hopefully our species is here for the very long haul. We have really um, gone amok with some of the wonderful approaches that have benefited many. And we've got to rectify that in the next few decades. And we can. And let's mm. also be sure that we keep people healthy in that process. I love a good positive outlook and a long-term thinking. So thank you. A good addition. Well, and thank, thank you. Me. Thank you so much for being on. This was, this was a great, a great dive into public health. Um, and I, Again, congrats on the on the new role and being the first non-physician president of the New York Academy of Medicine. That's incredible. So thank you for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you, Lee. Really enjoyed the conversation. Take care. And that's our show. Thank you for listening to the most interesting people in higher education. This listening experience is brought to you by Noodle, the network of online higher education programs. Our mission is to lower the cost of higher ed through a pursuit of excellence in online learning. And make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. See you next time.